This is Consumed, a scrappy little podcast about life and flavor. I'm your host, Jamie Lewis, a food and wine writer on California's Central Coast. Season two is sponsored in part by Slow Life Magazine. Slow Life shares the happenings, stories, and personalities that bring San Luis Obispo County to life. I love writing the food column for the magazine, meeting the people behind my plate, and sharing it with readers. Check your mailbox every other month for inspiring stories about folks you want to get to know, places you want to see, and flavors you want to taste. To learn more about how you can get Slow Life delivered to your door, visit slowlifemagazine.com. Wine writer Matt Ketman wears a lot of hats and has seen a lot of stuff. First, he's a senior editor at the Santa Barbara Independent, where he's worked since he was a college intern 20 years ago. He's also served as the Central Coast editor for Wine Enthusiast magazine since 2014. On top of that, Matt's a stringer for Time magazine and has had work published in the New York Times, Sunset Magazine, Smithsonian, and lots of others you've probably read. Currently, he's at work with renowned photographer Macduff Everton on a book about Santa Barbara County wineries called Vines and Vision, which is set to publish later this year. We met at Matt's home in Santa Barbara, and we talked about how he traveled to Wine's birthplace for a story, where, incidentally, he also wound up drunk, shooting automatic machine guns with Armenian generals. We also discussed the concept of serendipity, palate fatigue, and why he never wants to leave Santa Barbara. Here's Matt Ketman. Hey, Matt. Hey, Jamie. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks I for think- coming here. I think you might be one of the most, one of the busiest people I know. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I won't disagree. No, I don't think we need to assign any meaning to <laughs> yeah. it. Meaning to it, but I did want to say, uh, for being so busy, your response time on email is incredible. <laughs> Do you have you. a strategy? <laughs> Just you know, it, it stresses me out less when I have less things in my inbox. So. Um, I just try to answer things as quickly as possible, and uh, that often means being on my phone way too often, Yeah. Uh, and sometimes I answer things without maybe fully thinking them through in certain yeah. situations, but uh, for the most part, uh, that's just I, just, I just answer a lot of email. I mean, that's a lot of what the jobs are these days, you know, God, staying on true. top of things, and it does kind of pay off. Uh, I mean, you know, when I'm working with different publications, they see that I'm, you know, responsible and, and quick, and... Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, I don't know, it's been a strategy I've tried to use for a long time. I can't handle it when people don't reply to me. So, yeah. Isn't that funny? Do you compartmentalize at all where you, you send something off so quickly that you kind of forget that it even happened? Um, sometimes, although, you know, I basically use my inbox as my to-do list. That's the same, yeah. So I have, you know, I'm very good about managing where things are in the inbox. And so I'll also, I have a number of folders that I can put other things in that, Maybe I'm not going to look at right now, but if I need something to write about and, uh, you know, the next month I can, I can go to that folder or at least I know where to find it. Uh, yeah. I have two email systems. One is Gmail, which is through the Santa Barbara Independent. Mm-hmm. And the other one is um, Outlook, uh, which is through Wine Enthusiast. So mm-hmm. I use the Gmail more, um, but I also manage the Outlook. So I don't know. It's an interesting, it's an interesting combo, totally. um, but it allows me to kind of stay on top of things as much as humanly possible in this day and age with so many things floating around at you at all times. So. Totally. Um, well, tell me, where did you grow up? So I grew up in uh, San Jose. I'm actually a fifth generation San Joseian. Uh, grew up in East San Jose, actually near where my family uh, once owned tons of 
land and they were one of the largest shepherds in Santa Clara Valley. Really? Uh, they sold all that land way too early. <laughs> but um, I just happened to grow up uh, kind of in a suburban house in the foothills of East San Jose, um, right next to a, uh, a hillside where there were still apricots when I was growing up. My mm -hmm. dad used to actually pick those apricots when he was a kid for money. Wow. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so I grew up there my whole my whole childhood. So you're a how many generation Californian? At least fifth on my mom's side. It may be possible that we're sixth. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm sixth. My my uh, dad's side was just extremely well documented by one of my um, great uncle, great great uncles. Uh, mm -hmm. So we have like a five volume family history that details the family's arrival. Uh, you know the the Ketman side of the family um, came from Germany. Uh, they're uh, German Catholics, but they they married Irish really quickly. So we did a, I did got my brother a 23 and me test and came back like 89%, you know, British Isles. So, yeah. um, and a little bit of German, a little bit of French and then some Scandinavian, which must've been the, the Nordic invaders. Um, but anyway, yeah, so they, so, and then on my mom's side, the, the, one of the wings came, uh, during the gold rush. So to a place mm -hmm. called Keswick up, uh, actually just burned down in that paradise fire. Oh, um, gosh, but they yeah. settled into the Bay area, prior to 1900 as well and so my great grandmother was in the 1906 earthquake and that sort of thing so wow. so they my mom's side finally kind of came down from um san francisco onto the peninsula and then my dad's side kind of came up from southeast san jose and so they kind of converged in you know west san jose santa clara area so what was it like growing up in san jose i think of it as pretty suburby it's real suburby it's kind of like um the l i think of it as like the la of the north uh, but but without especially when I was growing up without the kind of cultural attractions that LA had. so only uh, the best great place to be from um, and actually there's a lot of things happening in San Jose right now that are that are kind of cool and I was there when the Sharks started and you know San Jose started to become a bigger city due to Silicon Valley money and that sort of thing but it's still a really kind of sprawled out yeah. place where it takes you especially nowadays a long time to get from one side to the other and living in East San Jose we were like kind of far from the freeway um so you know it took us it took a long time to get anywhere and and east san jose especially back then was not a hub of any type of cuisine you know the, the red robin was like the hot spot to eat Delicious. little you know we weren't obviously there was great mexican food uh and it turns out there was great vietnamese food that we would see but we didn't really i mean i went to school with a bunch of you know vietnamese kids and mexican kids and filipino kids and, and ate their food with them at, at their homes but i never we never really went to vietnamese restaurants lo and behold it's like the capital of vietnamese cuisine oh, is in, it really? in, in america at least it was back then i think it still is up there um but we didn't really know that i remember when we started going to the the japanese restaurant uh down the around the you know a couple miles away from our house it was called yuri's still there mm. i had a winemaker actually just tell me he was there recently and uh it's great sushi but anyway so like there was not a lot of you know culture per se in, in San Jose when I was growing up. Why did you live there? Were your parents, did they have uh, industry there that was, I mean, was your dad in or your mom in, you know, tech of any kind? Yeah. So um, they, yeah, they met at San Jose State or no, they might've met even before San Jose State. Um, I should probably know that. Uh, my mom started as a receptionist at Intel and oh. became like rose the ranks and worked there for 40 years and was at the end like kind of the go-to woman for the hard job so mm. she did meritocracy she did hr she did mergers and acquisitions uh my dad uh also worked in, in tech he worked at signetics uh he was kind of like a 
I think like a lab manager. Um, and he then in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, he was kind of sick of it and, um, they decided to open a golf store actually. So pivot, (laughs) big time pivot, big pivot. So they opened a golf store in of all places, East San Jose, which is not, um, a particularly wealthy neighborhood, especially back then, but it was nearby this country club that was supposed to open, uh, of course it took a lot longer for the country club to open so the golf store never really took off i think it was open for i don't know four or five years or so but then um but then my dad closed it uh and so at that point he would go this is when i was this is like early to mid 90s so when i was in high school uh and um that would be the time where he was supposed to go back and look for another job Mm. um but at that point intel was starting to just skyrocket and so uh, he was able to kind of be a stay-at-home dad, mm-hmm. um, which was great. Um, and so that's what you know he did for the rest of our time. And it was a good thing because he actually died at 63 a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So he was able to kind of live a retired life and travel a lot and, and golf and do all the stuff he wanted to do before he passed away. So that was that was a benefit of that too. Yeah. yeah. I feel like there's always that question my husband and I talk a lot about you know, do you, do you sow your wild oats when you're young or do you work really hard, have kids young and, and retire early and get it all done then? And, uh, yeah, I feel like that's a hard, a hard line to walk. Yeah. Uh, I think the answer is both. (laughs) Yeah. If you can swing it, you can swing it, have a good time as much as possible while you're, you're doing your work. I mean, luckily I've fallen into a career where it's kind of a hobby as well as a career, but, Mm. um, not everyone obviously can, can do that. But, um, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to wait till the end either. It's hard. I yeah. mean, you just don't know. You just don't know. Yeah. Uh, and so, I don't know. I've been pretty good about spending the money that I make. <laughs> good for <laughs> so, you. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah. My kids can figure that out later, I guess. Did you, were you always a writer when you were a kid? Um, no. I mean, I, I will say in, um, I guess in some ways, yes. You know, looking back at how I would spend uh, a lot of my time as a, as a kid, um, I did a lot of like, wandering around the yard just thinking to myself which was Mm. you know Mm -hmm. kind of probably weird at the time but um looking back I guess it was kind of like a writing thing and I would do I would write these weird um stories about you know made up worlds and and even like made up sports leagues and stuff like that so I did have these kind of narratives going around my head as a kid um which I haven't really thought about that Mm -hmm. much um Mm -hmm. until recently and um and then I was interested in writing in high school um there was a particular class that we took that was called uh, Literature, the Counterculture. Um, I went to a Jesuit high school, Bellarmine, all boys. Uh, but being Jesuit, they were really into education, so it was not conservative at yeah, all. Yeah, we didn't very have that liberal. class in my high school. Yeah, <laughs> very yeah. liberal. Uh, and um, the class taught us, you know, the books of all of these kind of counterculture movements. So there was, you know, we started, I think, kind of around Lost Generation, so we read a lot of Hemingway. Mm-hmm. We moved into The Beats. Um, we got into like, uh, you know, Ken Kesey type stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point the teacher was like, I can't assign this book, but you should go look up fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah. I was going to say I did. also Bukowski. <laughs> did you read that? We read a little bit. Well, he couldn't assign us Bukowski. Yeah, right. He mentioned Bukowski, <laughs> which I did eventually read a bunch of. Um, and I remember going to the, to find fear and loathing in Las Vegas and, uh, went to some bookstore and I'm looking in the, like the fiction section and I'm like, and I went and asked someone and they're like, Oh, it's in the sociology section. I'm like, oh. okay. Huh. Okay, so I go over there, and sure enough, there's this like you know trippy looking book, and reading that really opened my eyes, I think, to a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and so, and in those classes in high school, we were we were um, some of the assignments were trying to emulate 
you know, William Burroughs writing or, or Hemingway's writing and stuff like that. And, and we would do it. And I always, the teacher was always like, yeah, you're pretty, you're good at this, you know, by the way. So, hmm. um, and I was also good at like speech and debate classes where you're making persuasive arguments and stuff like that. So yeah. I kind of thought I'd be a lawyer. Um, it seemed like an easy, not an easy way to go. It's obviously not easy, but something that would fit me and would keep me interested. Um, uh, but my parents actually advised me not to be, hmm. um, why they had so many friends that were lawyers and they saw how much they worked. Yeah. Um, and how much it was like their whole life. So there's a lot of lawyers who don't want to be lawyers anymore, too. Most of the ones I know don't yes, want to be lawyers same. anymore. You know? But they are, they do well financially. Yeah. Oh, sure. Um, but they work all the time. And um, I mean, I work all the time, too. But I guess, you know, a lot of my work is, is, is not as is interesting to me. You know, it's not just pushing papers around. So um, a lot of the ones that I know don't like job that they're tasked with they don't they don't uh, one in particular i can think of doesn't find it particularly ethical too you know and (laughs) so only now is this hitting her that oh shoot you know you spend your whole life gearing up for that and then you're kind of in golden handcuffs and yeah i think i think it'd be kind of interesting to like be a lawyer and just be like a country lawyer you know where you like you hang your shingle People come to you with their various issues. It's always yeah. kind of interesting because you're learning something new. I mean, a lot of being a lawyer would be like being a journalist where you're constantly learning. Um, but I don't know. You could I, be like Matlock. It's hard Matt to Locke. go there. It could be like Matlock. Yeah. <laughs> or like, you know, yeah. Just some just some guy that deals with people's problems, you know, yeah. but in an ethical way and tries to actually reach a solution, not just the, you know, the solution for your client. So, yeah, right. but it is an advocate, you know, it's an advocacy position. So, well, why didn't you become an attorney? So your parents told you, my parents advised me not to, um, yeah. I thought, so then I got, so I went to UCSB, uh, and got really interested in, uh, anthropology pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, took a, some early classes with a kind of a legend named Napoleon Shagnon. And he was like the full on archetype of, white man goes to jungle becomes jungle man interact what is interacts this with name the, also yeah, it's a great Shagna, name Shagnon. he wrote Shagnon. the yanomami books pretty pretty famous guy yeah got into some weird controversial trouble but after i left um after i left college he he was getting a little too close with the natives or something but yeah uh, or that was the allegation par for the course yeah. sometimes for yeah. professors yeah. yeah so i thought so i got really interested in anthropology and um dove pretty strongly into it um almost got a I had had an option to get a, a BS uh, as well. I did, basically did all the classes for the Bachelor of Science as as for the Bachelor of Arts, and then I could have done the Bachelor of Science, but there was one last class it was a biology class, uh, and the the teacher said, you know, you have to be here on this Friday of Memorial Day weekend because that's our main test, and if you can't be here then you can't you shouldn't take this class and i was like i'm going to reggae on the river that weekend screw it (laughs) i'll take the ba (laughs) so uh that was my decision there um but at that point i had also because i got interested in anthropology so early like all of my classwork was kind of done by midway through my junior year maybe even earlier junior year i still did take units you know yeah um but they the ucsb had just started offering uh this professional writing minor um Mm. and so i uh had always been a, a really good writer, a really fast writer. Um, Did you write for the paper, for the school no, paper? No. So I wrote in high school, going back to high school, I wrote very briefly for um, a couple times for um, our paper there. Wasn't particularly rewarding. Um, but you weren't like the editor of Nothing. The, no, none of okay. that. I thought about writing for the Nexus, but then I just never really did. Yeah. Um, 
I was busy in Isla Vista doing things you do, you do sure. in Isla Vista. Sure, sure. Um, and I was a good student. After my, my you know, I, I had great grades all through uh, high school. And then I got to UCSB and I, I got like some of my first B's in a long time mm-hmm. my freshman year because I wasn't, I was just not paying a whole lot of attention. I failed a class my freshman year. <laughs> yeah. I got a letter. My parents got a letter saying, and it was the dumbest class to fail. It was called stagecraft because I thought I wanted to be a theater major. And it was like, you know, discussing the the um, the set. That's what it was, <laughs> and, and I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't show up. Yeah, yeah. I just could not do it. I had a friend call me at you know nine in the morning and say, "You need to wake up. The final started a half an hour ago." Oh my god! So yeah, easy. easy god fail. bless her for calling me, but it didn't make much difference. <laughs> yeah, no. At UCSB, I remember going to some of the first classes, and they said very bluntly, "You don't have to come to class." You, you, this is, you are an adult, you can figure it out, you do not have to come, you have to go to your sections, you know, but you don't actually have to come to lectures if you don't want to. And I was like, well, great, (laughs) then I won't. Permission granted. Yeah, so, but then I realized after that kind of not so great freshman year that I was like, well, I should probably pay more attention. So I started going to classes, taking notes, reading the books, and was back to getting A's and stuff. And so, um, so I sailed through all that and uh, was a good writer, um, Maybe even help some other people write some papers once or twice. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, and then, um, then I so they, so UCSB had started this professional writing minor, and so uh, we were the we were the guinea pig class really of this. Mm-hmm. They they had like a technical writing minor, um, but this was for more editorial writing. And so mm-hmm. the class itself, uh, they were still figuring it out. It wasn't super useful. But what they made us do was get an internship somewhere. Mm. Uh, and so I got an internship at the Santa Barbara Independent. And that was 20 years ago this oh, year. Wow. 28? <laughs> 20 years ago 20. this year. Yeah. Oh, my 1999. Gosh. And so I remember going into the going into the uh, the meeting and saying, you know, does interns, do interns get to write? And the person was like, no, not really. And I was like, at that point, I was just kind of like, I got to click this box. I got to do this thing. I, I, I'd been reading The Independent for years in, mm. in school. I'd always was a voracious reader of uh, whatever kind of media was around. Mm. Um, and so, so I was like, all right, well, I'll do it anyway. So I went in and that first day, there was a note that the editorial director wasn't there. But there was a note that said, hey, call uh, the travel editor, Leslie Westbrook, who's still around in town today. Um, she needs some help with a story. So I call up Leslie. And she says, oh, I, I'd like you to research this new trend of buying airplane tickets on the internet. <laughs> Priceline. Yeah. So <laughs> I went to the one dial-up computer in the office, uh, you know, with the modem noises and everything, and I looked up basically Priceline. That was the only thing yeah. that was out there. Did some research, wrote her an email that was in, uh, you know, unlike emails today, grammatically correct. I wasn't trying to write an article, but I was writing grammatically correct. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is like a, I'm treating it professionally. And she writes back, she said, this is great. I'm just going to throw it in the article. And so like the next week I have my first, you know, real byline and I'm like, hey, that's pretty cool. Wasn't that exciting? Yeah. And she took me on a radio show with her. Uh, and I'm just like this like wide eyed little kid basically. Um, and I was like, huh, this is kind of cool. And so the rest of that internship went really well. It went from like, can I write for you? Oh, I'm not sure to like writing almost yeah. weekly, um, helping the listings editor with, you know, best bets and stuff like that, doing a few little other stories. And so graduated from school that, you know, June 99 or whatever, and then went to Europe on a trip with my family at one point and then hooked up with a girlfriend and her friend. So it was like six weeks or so in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, came back and 
because our lease in Isla Vista, we had a weird lease that went to September rather than June. Like, oh, like 90%, yeah. 95% of leases went till went till June. And ours, for whatever reason, went to September. And I think that was kind of like a weird saving grace for me because it allowed me to come back to Isla Vista uh, and, and set the next stage you know yeah. so and if no I had to, no hard deadline gotta get out of here gotta figure it out no, i mean we had till september to figure you know end of september to figure it out mid-september um and so i was able to come back go back to where i was living and i, I didn't have to go back to san jose if i had to go back to san jose mm-hmm. and try to figure out how to get back to santa barbara from there it probably wouldn't have happened yeah so i'd probably be a super rich tech <laughs> zillionaire now <laughs> maybe <laughs> Um, or still living at home, uh, one of the two. Um, and so, so I was able to basically, I went into the independent. I said, Hey, I had a pretty good internship. You guys got any jobs? And they said, well, we have a proofreading job opening here. Take this test. Did that. I'm like, how'd I do? We well, did. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when do I start? They said, Oh, you start next week. So I did have this weird period at that time of living kind of in my car for about like three <laughs> weeks. We, we had gotten a lease on a place downtown, but there was a gap. Yeah. And, um, I couch surfed and, and lived in a car. I wrote about it once called the quarter life crisis or something. And um, mm. I remember like looking longingly at parks and being and sitting, just sitting by parks in my car and killing time. Yeah. Um, but, I remember when the quarter life crisis, I remember there was a website called quarterlifecrisis.com and I was working in a cubicle at the time and I was feeling that pressure, whether that's a legitimate thing or not. Right. I definitely was feeling that the low that comes after all this buildup to get a career, you know, and it sounds like we were maybe in college around the same time. So the tech boom had busted. No one was hiring for anything, least of all the thing I studied. So, um, but your trajectory reminds me a lot of somebody else I interviewed for this podcast, a chef who talked about so much of it is serendipity. Yep. So much of it is just being at the back door and saying, I can help. Right. Um, yeah. Well, and for me, it's, it's always been like doors open and you walk through them. You don't really hesitate. You just kind of go. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I've been doing with a lot of the rest of my career. But um, so, yeah, so I actually thought I was going to be like a professor. That was my trajectory. Oh. Uh, I mm-hmm. thought I was going to I took the GRE. I thought I was going to go to grad school and then be an anthropologist, basically. Hmm. But I my the option was like, OK, go to school for 10 more years, accrue debt and then have a job that you don't make tons of money on yeah. or just start making not tons of money right away. <laughs> so <laughs> That's a fair comparison, honestly. Yeah. And so that's what I started doing. So then I was a um, proofreader for a while. Uh, at that time, they um, we got paid. It was turned out it wasn't actually legal, but uh, I was getting paid hourly to be a proofreader, but I was getting paid by the word to be a writer. Yeah. For me, it was perfect because it was motivation to write. So I wrote like crazy outdoor stories, yeah. um, food stories started doing i actually started doing some wine stories at that mm-hmm. time back in 2000 um i thought you did music Wait, is i that did a... music i did all i did everything at yeah. that time and then i became a news reporter for five years while and when i was a news reporter i still did every other thing yeah um which is funny because now sometimes now i see um people that kind of pigeonhole themselves as one thing or another and it's like why not do it all you yeah. get to you get you're much better reporter at the end of the day if you can do it all mm-hmm. um and then was a pop culture editor for about a year and a half. And then uh, I ended up taking our job at the paper as a, um, as a senior editor in charge of developing independent.com, essentially. Mm-hmm. Not on like the tech side, but on the editorial and that yeah. sort of side. And so that was in 06. Um, Which at the time, 
was probably more just a side thing to the paper than well, the main dish. It was definitely, and it still is, I mean, we like to think we focus both on the print and the web, and we do, but really the print is still like the, the money driver and the okay. um, kind of the main focus. Um, but back then what had happened was that the news press here in Santa Barbara had had this crazy, uh, you know, globally publicized demise, essentially, mm-hmm. where all their, many of their reporters left for ethical reasons. Others were fired when they tried to unionize, et cetera, et cetera. And so everyone came to us and said, you guys should be a daily. And we're like, you're crazy, but mm-hmm. we do need, we have, ind- we own independent.com. We should exploit this a little bit more. And so we developed it into, you know, more or less a daily website back yeah. then. Um, more dynamic. More dynamic stuff that was online that wasn't in print. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's pretty vibrant. We have videos. We have all types of galleries. All the sort of stuff that you need to do these days. Are you still um, in charge of that? I mean, is that one um, of your main focuses? No. Um, I mean, I'm still a senior editor. Uh, my focus at the paper is mostly food and drink coverage these days. Although I also do a lot of our special set. Well, pretty much most of our special sections, uh, which we do, I don't know, a half dozen or so a year. Um, and then I, I'm also dealing with, uh, lots of just kind of top level management situations when they arise and, and my help is needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a good amount of freedom there, which is good because it's just one of the things I do these days. Yeah. So. And I'm thinking you, so you've been there, um, 20 years continuously this, yeah. for 20 years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But you had other writing gigs. Yeah. So, um, you know, our, my boss there, Marianne Partridge, who's a uh, part owner of the paper and founded the paper, um, she she had worked at uh, Village Voice. She was the editor-in-chief of Village Voice in New York City for a long time. She was one of the first editors at Rolling Stone. So she was editing Hunter S. Thompson when he was doing all these crazy things he was talking about. You know, wow. She was on the phone with him when he blew up the Mojo machine or whatever. Wow. Um, she edited Tom Wolfe. She edited all these people that are like, oh. you know, the stars of new journalism. Um, but she's always been smart about running the paper in the sense that it's not the best paying gig, but she's always let her writers have freedom to, to write for other people and encourage them to do mm-hmm. so. Um, and I think I've probably exploited that encouragement more than anyone in the history of the paper. So good, um, though. But that was, you know, really uh, early on a really kind of positive thing because honestly, if I hadn't been able to, you know, go f- make more money, uh, get some ego strokes by getting bylines and other publications. Um, I wouldn't have stayed so long. I probably would have gone to hunt. I don't even know if I'd still be in Santa Barbara, which I should say the main reason I, I got into this all was to stay in Santa Barbara. It wasn't even like Mm. journalism in the beginning. You mean wine? I mean, I mean my jobs. Everything. Everything. (laughs) It's like, I want to, I've been around the world and I want to stay here. And why do you want to stay here? Other than the obvious. Well, it's pretty... I mean, it is the obvious. It's, you know, it's a beautiful place. Um, weather's near perfect, at least as far as it gets. Uh, it's a smaller town feel, um, mm-hmm. yet there's tons of, you know, cosmopolitan offerings at all times. Um, thankfully, the food and drink scene has just exploded while yeah. I've been here. Um, so those, I mean, those were kind of the primary reasons. But um, but so she, she encourages to, Marianne encourages to be, for, you know, to work for other places. And she also, uh, early on, back in like 2001, uh, I was going to do this story on um, Annabelle Ford, who's a UCSB archaeologist. She's kind of like the Indiana Jones of Guatemala, Belize. And so <laughs> I was going to write the story and I was starting to research it. And, and Marianne was like, well, why don't you go down there? And I was no. like, yeah, why for don't For the I independent? Go? Yeah, but not, they weren't funding the trip. Oh, okay. But... 
it was like, <laughs> why don't so I go naive, down there? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And so I did. I went down there and had this kind of crazy adventure trying to find Annabelle and then, um, and then wrote the story about her. Um, and also kind of came back and wrote the story. And I came back with all these crazy stories about my trip. And then I tried to write the story really straight, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, and she's the Indiana Jones, blah, blah. And Marianne was like, why don't you write it like you're telling us these stories? And so I did. I went back and wrote this kind of adventure story for me. Um, and obviously covered the story as well. Um, so anyway, so that made me realize, oh, I can travel and do this gig. And so I started to go places, uh, almost every year for kind of extended periods of time. Um, I went to Bolivia on this crazy bike trip. And then in 2004, a guy, um, photographer named Jonathan Alpery, who actually was later abducted in Syria. He's alive, but was abducted and held for a while. He was a big, like uh, war photographer, was aspiring to be a war photographer, and so he wanted to go to this place where he had connections called Nagorno-Karabakh, which is this war-torn, officially unrecognized republic between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And so I kind of researched it. It looked, you know, somewhat potentially dangerous, but mostly safe. Uh, I mean, my the rule I made up for myself at some point was like, I don't want to go places where I'm going to be an actual target. I don't mind if there's some danger involved, but yeah. I don't want to go actually be a target. Um, it didn't seem like we'd be targets. It looked like we were going to help the people, actually. And this photographer's from here? He's French-American, yeah. Okay. So he's from New York uh, and Paris, but he, I think he interned for us or something. He had friends that live here, yeah. um, but he was younger than me. And uh, anyway, so we go to Nagorno, we go to Armenia for a, a month, basically, uh, in Karabakh. And so we're going there to cover geopolitical stories, but I know it's going to take a while to, to do those stories. So I'm like, what else can we do in the meantime? What are some fluffier things we can look at? And uh, sure enough, they had this this wine uh, industry and I was like I've written about wine I know enough about mm-hmm. wine mm-hmm. and so we went there and the first couple days we, it took a while to get into Karabakh but once we got in there we spent the first couple days um, traveling around their wine regions so which was the whole country and this is where this is basically where wine is from yeah. I mean right. um, and so but the, but they had been they had fought a, a war between it was a, a war a post-Soviet war between Armenia and Azerbaijan in which 30,000 people were killed in this region of 200,000 people. So basically mm-hmm. everyone knew someone very close that had been killed. Mines were still everywhere, all through the vineyards. The wineries were basically barns that had bullet holes all through them. So we ran, went around checking all this out. We went into a, a cooperage that was a former tank factory. Um, and I was just like, this is mind-blowing. So we came back. We did all the other reporting, too. We actually spent a lot of time getting drunk with generals and going and shooting uh, automatic machine guns, which was, which was oh, a hoot. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, especially with tracer bullets at night. I mean, that was fun, too. No, but. me too, Matt. <laughs> I've, I totally did that. That's amazing. So. I want to take a minute to share about one of my supporters on the Consumed podcast. If you're listening, you're probably a fan of good food and good people, right? Well, coming soon, the San Luis Obispo Public Market at Long Bonetti Ranch will bring fresh flavor, fresh faces, and fresh inspiration to the Central Coast. Let me tell you, this is going to be a very big deal. Long Bonetti Ranch was established in 1880 and is named after George W. Long and Florino Bonetti. The ranch housed horses and dairy cows and produced grain, veggies, and flowers. The Slow Public Market will honor the Long and Bonetti family legacies with local purveyors of different foods and ingredients, ranging from a brewery and a cheese shop to tacos, coffee, ice cream, juices, spirits, and my personal obsession, bao buns. There's lots more to come, and it's all coming very soon. To learn more about the Slow Public Market or for information on becoming a merchant there, visit slowpublicmarket.com. 
So I came back and we were, I did a cover story for the independent on kind of the, the geopolitical situation. Uh, I actually made some contacts with time magazine because of that, um, that trip and ended up becoming a stringer for them for over. I'm actually technically still a stringer, but mm. I wrote a lot for them for about a decade. Um, and, but then I also had this, these wine notes. And so I went to like the borders or whatever, Barnes and Noble, and was like, okay, I'm gonna go to the wine magazine section. What what is a major? And I saw Wine Spectator, and I was like, oh, that seems big and important. So I just sent them a kind of a cold pitch, and they said, yeah, we take that story. So well, it's they, such an unusual story it's, too. Yeah, it's like not no one else normal. is going there. Yeah. Um, so they took that story and ran it as like a, I mean, it was like a ten page spread, and like probably three thousand, wow. four thousand words, a bunch of pictures. Uh, and so that, and they and they immediately said, well, what else do you have? Because I think they mm-hmm. saw. You know the wine, wine writing industry, the wine media. There's not a lot of, uh, maybe more so now, but there's not a lot of trained journalists that are in it. There's a lot of people that came from industry um, and that became writers, or that came through other means. But you know, I was coming up through basically being a news reporter and and knew how to do you know hard journalism, and so they started asking me for stories right away. So I wrote for them pretty extensively for I don't know. Well, I would do like a handful of stories a year for for about um, eight or nine years. Yeah. Uh, and then meanwhile, I wrote for Time Magazine on all types of stuff. Um, New York Times did some wine stories and some other stories. Mm-hmm. Um, about local stuff? Yeah, I did a story for New York Times about... Uh, I did a travel story about Santa Rosa Island, mm-hmm. which was an awesome trip. I did a um, I did the Santa Cruz Island wine story for them on the Rusacks and their, uh, and their Catalina Island vineyard. Yeah. Um, wrote a bunch for Smithsonian, a little bit for Sunset you know, various newspapers here and there. So there's so much, I mean, I'm just thinking about the fact that you paid out of pocket to go on this trip. Mm-hmm. Is that pretty much the story for all of those stories? Yes. Basically I would pay out of pocket. I would write a, but I didn't have to take vacation cause I was not on a vacation. I was working. Yeah. So, um, I didn't take vacation from the paper. Uh, and, and then I would sell stories to pay for the trip back. Yeah. And it usually either was a wash or I actually made some money. Um, are you married at this point? Uh, no, Yeah. but we are, I am my wife. I met in Oh three. So by the time I'm going on these kind of more dangerous trips, um, uh, it was, we were, we were, I was whatever it's called. Yeah. It wasn't together. We were together. Um, So I I did actually go to northern Uganda. I went and covered a presidential election in Uganda, which was pretty sketchy. I went to northern Uganda for a while. Actually hit a... an Impala or some unidentified ungulate while driving a borrowed car going about 100 kilometers an hour in the middle of the day in Uganda. That's a 50-minute story right there. So we can just do a focus on that one day. Um, And I went to India on a trip with a nonprofit called Vitamin Angels where we were in the slums of Mumbai. We were in like the Sundarbans where the Bengal tigers still roam around. Um, But then, yeah, as I got married, those trips kind of started to die down. As I I had kids, I haven't been to any sketchy spot. No, and well, I'm not not even thinking about the sketchiness. I'm just thinking about the travel itself and how so many people don't realize that a lot of journalism, especially features, comes out of a writer's pocket and they don't necessarily know if it's going to get picked up or not. Certainly. Yeah, a lot of that stuff, um, it's just all on spec you know well, and you obviously have a passion for travel and for yeah. threatening situations yeah yeah and stories that you know stories about real conflict yeah and it's pretty amazing you go to these places it, and if you're a journalist that is knows how to spot a story 
like everywhere you turn, you're like, well, that's an interesting story. And so then you start to spin out like, okay, which publication would take that story? Mm. Uh, and I got pretty good at that. I don't think I ever really had the time to fully flesh that out. And maybe one day I, I will, but, um, you know, I got a pretty good knack for landing stories. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't like, it wasn't hundred percent obviously because you get used to a lot of no's, mostly yeah, no's, right. but I had a pretty good track record for being able to figure out who wanted which story. And actually some of the times I had stories that were actually assigned and I just never finished them because I got busy with other stuff. Yeah. So, um, There's some old adage. Have you ever heard the, the old saying that the best, uh, the best stories only happen to writers? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard that, but I think Isn't that's that probably true. Isn't that the coolest thing, though? I love that, that, you know, it really is, it's about the skill and about the interest, I think, to be curious. Of course, a story's going to spin out from that. Yeah. Um, I just love that, though, thinking that way. Well, and we're, and we're essentially trained observers and trained interpreters of situations. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you've, if you've, especially if you've traveled a lot and you've tried to have many life experiences, you can kind of pull from all these different things, even make a seemingly mundane situation right. have a little more richness to it yeah so. and find the conflict and yeah. maybe resolution i do appreciate the fact that you came up through hard journalism because writers like you can pull something together so fast if yeah. you've been doing you know fast you know daily or weekly stories you know how to meet a deadline yeah and it's uh you know i wouldn't say it's easy but certain assignments i get even if they don't pay what i really want if I look at them and go, you know, I could pull this out in like an hour. Like I'll just, I'll just God, take it. <laughs> I wish I could do that. No way. But that's an amazing gift to be able to do that. Yeah. And it's been helpful obviously to pay some bills and yeah. get some bylines and that sort of thing. So. so you, um, when you were covering some craziness for time, I remember you telling me that you covered the Michael Jackson trial. I did indeed. Yeah. That was a good year. Cause I get the double dip for <laughs> time magazine yeah. paying me a weekly stipend and then, uh, and then going up there three or four days a week for the independent too. So yeah, yeah I wrote a, for the independent, I wrote, I wrote a couple cover stories and then I wrote a, um, a column that we called Neverland dispatches, which was basically me trying to boil down a week of craziness into, you know, 500 words or 600 words or whatever. And then for time magazine, I just, I really, I mean, I, I would submit some, you know, stringer stuff here and there, and they'd, they'd run some bylines, but it was mostly just sitting there for them in case something crazy happened. Of course, the day that the craziest thing happened, when he showed up in his pajamas, I wasn't there, but my oh, two, of my, two of my colleagues were who I had sent, and I got them paid and bylines in Time Magazine, too, so at least there's that. That's awesome. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. Um, What was the nuttiest part of doing that i mean i remember you telling me weren't you staying at the santa Maria inn or something like that no mostly i stay mostly i commuted okay so there was a whole group of journalists that's you know national international journalists that stayed there mm. um but i actually was commuting which was kind of crazy but we didn't have a but no one had a budget to put me up i never even asked time about it yeah. i think one of the reasons they wanted me to do it was because i lived nearby so i got really good at you know driving up 101 or over 154 um and it was you know, and it's 12 miles difference, but about the time's about the same, honestly. No, I do not <laughs> believe that. And Google says otherwise. So. Yeah. That, 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 the time I, I tried it all the time. It's just cause you can fly on one oh one. Yeah. And you right. gotta kind of go a little bit closer to the speed limit on one fifty. And you can get trapped on And you can get trapped. You run yeah. a risk, but, um, anyway, so, uh, so yeah, I did that for a lot of 2005 and I actually was working with an agent and had a, like a potential book thing about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 
uh, it basically, you know, a, a book came out pretty quickly after it, and it just was a big dud, and yeah. so everyone was kind of like, well, no one wants a book on that. So, did you watch the? There's two different Michael no. Jackson things. No, I'm a <laughs> pretty over it at this I point. Bet. You know? I bet. You know, when he died, I wrote, I thought a pretty uh, good and meaningful um, in memoriam mm-hmm. about his life, and uh, I felt like that was kind of, I was done there. Yeah, you know, closure. Um, I, you know. And my book had my book idea had a pretty cool arc. I mean, I went into it thinking that he was probably guilty. And then I watched the trial and I was like, no, these people are scam artists. Mm-hmm. He's not guilty. And then at the end when the when the actual victim testified or where they ran some of his testimony, I was like, nope, he's telling the truth like this no. actually happened. Yeah. Then by the end I realized everything was true. Michael Jackson was abused as a kid, you know, in immeasurable ways. Um, he probably did bad things to these kids, um, but might not have known it was bad to some yeah, extent. Right. The mom was certainly putting the kid in a situation sure. for that purpose. Yeah. Uh, you know, everyone was trying to cash in on this this thing, and it was like every like all the bad things were true. You know, it was yeah. like everything was true. But it's all about perception and reality. Yeah. And for him, I completely see what you're saying is he didn't know that this was wrong. Yeah. And I'm not sure. I mean, he must have known in some ways that it was wrong, but still like there was some truth to all that. So um, anyway, it was an interesting time. Did uh, you get to taste anything good while you were doing that? I mean, did that. Wine wise? Yeah. For some reason, I always thought that you lived elsewhere and you were coming in for time. I have this funny story in my head that you and that's how you fell in love with wine because you were no. close to San Inez and Santa Maria Valley, but that's not true. No, I was driving through it, but no, that was, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I was already drinking plenty of wine at that time. Yeah. So I was, I did probably make some stops and buy wine, you yeah. know, from time to time. But. Well, what was the peak? I mean, now you're with Wine Enthusiasts. Yeah. Uh, is it the Central Coast editor? Is that? Yeah, I'm contributing position? editor and I cover Central Coast and South Coast, which really means Southern California. So, hmm. um, so I do both, uh, you know, I do obviously wine reviews i review about 200 250 wines a month um and i do then i also do all of the features or front of the book stuff um for the magazine from the central coast and southern california and i like to say southern california because i also cover the culture of you know los angeles san diego um santa cruz that sort of thing too so um so it's a little bit of it's both wine and culture. And that's what's great about wine enthusiasts is that it's not just wine. We do travel, we do food, we do booze, we do beer, uh, we do all that sorts of stuff. So Yeah. Um, uh, talk to me about tasting. I feel like there's a big difference between, you know, spinning out a story, weaving together a story about, say, a winemaker or, you know, broker or whatever, and then being a reviewer. Seems like a yeah. difference. It, there must have been a point at which you said, yeah, I think I can do this. Well, it was funny. One, so one enthusiast came to me and be like, I want to say January of 2014. Um, and they took me out to dinner. And I said at that dinner, I didn't know what they wanted me to do. I figured they were going to ask me to do something. And I said, I'm not interested in being a reviewer. I'm a journalist. Mm-hmm. And two weeks later, they said, well, we want you to review the whole Central Coast. And I was like, that hey. sounds like a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah. I started into that. And there was no real... Um, so I'd been tasting wine at that point with winemakers pretty frequently. Uh, and I'd say fairly intensively, increasingly intensively over the past seven six seven years at that point mm-hmm. um writing a good amount for spectator other places and hanging out a lot in the valley and and so tasting and and, and kind of incorporating i would say some tasting notes into my writing mm-hmm. um i wasn't doing 
reviews. I would maybe do little little tiny reviews here and there. Clearly not scoring ones. But anyway, so I said I'd do it. They flew me to New York for a couple uh, for a visit with a few different people and and kind of a like almost like a demo of how they did it. Ew. Um, oh, that sounds hard. That sounds nerve wracking. <laughs> I thought it was a test, you know, and I'm like, yeah, right. uh, this is Pinot. <laughs> it turned out it was all Pinot, but at one point I'm like, this might be Grenache, you know. <laughs> um, and so it wasn't a test. It was more just a demonstration. And yeah. So, um, and I, and really the point of the demonstration, I think, was to show how creative you can be with what you're smelling and, and, mm. and tasting. So, it kind of, you know, freed me up to like figure it out. And so I came back and I remember, I think it was St. Patrick's Day of 2014, I started and just kind of started figuring it out, you know. Yeah. Um, certainly in the beginning, there was a lot of like looking up like red fruit words and things like that. Oh, God. Um, but then that eventually, the you, eventually you develop a kind of reliable vocabulary. And, and straightforward. I mean, I've read your reviews. I like how straightforward they are. It's yeah. not, yeah, it's not um, overwrought. No, it, we don't have space. You know, they have to be under sixty words, and no. and honestly, the the I think a lot of times the shorter they are, the better. Obviously, if you're if you're writing a if you're giving a ninety five pointer, you know, you kind of want to explain what, what mm. why you're doing mm-hmm. that. Um, and I try to incorporate information as much as possible beyond just my tasting notes. Like this is from this vineyard, and this vineyard is important because why, or mm-hmm. it was planted here, or this winemaker is interesting because X. You can't do a lot of that in sixty words, but I try to incorporate a little bit as much as possible. Um, and so that's like kind of journalism background playing into the reviews a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so, but yeah, I basically, so this morning before you got here mm-hmm. and it's only 10 30 right yeah, now, right. I got up at five 30, I wrote 40 reviews from, from notes that I'd taken over the last couple of days and I tasted, um, 14 wines before you got here. How do you keep that stamina? And took a shower. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Probably worked out. Shaved my head. Wrote a feature. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I mean, that stamina, are, I'm just going to ask, are you really tasting it after the 10th one? Yeah, because I do flights of like four or five. Mm-hmm. Um, they're blind. We taste blind. So my wife will, or son or assistants will mm-hmm. pour them behind the fridge, bring them over. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty quick. And I'm, sp- you know, obviously I'm spitting it all out. Yeah, right. But even so, I mean, it's just, it's a lot of information that you're getting yeah. for each one. But yeah, I mean, because I'm also changing up varieties, you know. So this morning I did, I did a few Chardonnay. I did a few Pinot Gris. I did yeah. a few Pinot. I did a few Cab. So you know, you're getting different flavor profiles and different aromatic profiles with each of those sets. And right. so that makes it a little bit easier. It is good to switch. I don't, the reason I do smaller flights is because once I start to get over six, they do start to muddle a little yeah. bit and they kind of get a little, you know, so it's easier. I can just be quicker. I could do, I can do eight. I, I do competitions where we do like 50 in a row, which is kind of silly. Of the same variety? Yeah. Well, we usually, get, I mean, we'll do maybe 40. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but those are, you're not taking notes. You're just trying to say if it's a bronze, silver, gold, you know. Oh, okay. A little different. A little yeah. Different. And quicker. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so anyway, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a grind. Everyone I, when I tell people what I do, they're like, oh, that's the best job in the world. And it's like, not, I'm not necessarily gonna, true. No, I mean, it's not, I'm not going to complain. About, I make a very strong point not to complain about what I get yeah. to do for a living. But it is a grind, you know. Yeah. And you can see my garage from this window. I mean, there's it's stacked with boxes. And so I spend a lot of my time opening boxes. We have five recycling bins. I didn't show you that on the tour. Um, <laughs> you can see them later if you'd like. Five recycling, big recycling bins. Uh, Tell and- me that you're getting the 
the kickback, the you know, five to ten cent kickback on the bottles. No, I, I have not quite figured out a way to monetize my cardboard. Situation. If homeless so the, people knew, so the bottles actually, I don't have a lot of bottled trash. The yeah. bottles get dispersed. They go to my independent office. My wife takes them to her office. Oh, okay. Um, they go to our neighbors. They go to our friends. They go to parties. You know, so there's a like anytime I show up anywhere, I'm expected to bring about a case of wine. Yeah. So it's and it's I'm I'm cool with that. Yeah. Um, so the so we really don't get a lot of bottle trash. I mean, we get some obviously, but, but not boxes. what you think. Bo- it's cardboard and and sh- um, shipping packers or whatever they're called. Yeah. People send me foam. We've actually, as a magazine, have asked to not send foam anymore. Mm-hmm. I still get a little bit of it. And so what I do is I, I ride around with my truck it has a, a a bed top. So I just pack it with styrofoam until it's full, and then I usually go to a bottle shop like Vino de Vino and yeah. drop it off, and they can reuse the the styrofoam. So that's awesome. Because I, I can't throw it in the, I can't recycle it, and it would fill my trash can up like with one box. So right, you have a really big truck for somebody who probably drives a lot. Is it to I fit do. in in San Inez? No, actually, it was my dad. When my dad passed away, I inherited the oh, truck from him. So. That's a sweet legacy. It's a yeah. beefy truck. Yeah, it's a Ford F one fifty. It's a twenty ten. It's got some miles on it at this point, but uh, still works pretty well and uh, it, it actually is a really nice car and so i always wondered why my parents would drive that instead of their like fuel it's like a cadillac car. inside isn't it's, it? yeah and it's yeah it's a lariat edition so it's got wood trim and it's a really nice nice car so yeah. the gas mileage isn't as horrible as you think it's like 20 oh okay <laughs> <laughs> well uh, tell me about your kids i mean how old are they uh, my son Mason is uh, nine years old, and my daughter Madeline just turned seven uh, two weeks ago. That's right. And my daughter's going to turn seven in, um, oh gosh, a month, and mm-hmm. my son is nine. Oh, so we're we right know in the same exactly boat. the same. We're in the same phase of life. Yeah. Do they show any interest in my son? My daughter shows a ton of interest in smelling whatever I'm drinking. Do either of them do that? Yeah, they do. Uh, I think my son is like more uh, genuinely interested. Yeah. Uh, but my daughter will do it too, and they actually have pretty good palates sometimes. Sure. Like especially if I get a strong note of, you know, a lot of times the, the the notes are fairly subjective and kind of interpretive. But sometimes there's strong notes of say cinnamon, you know, and, mm, I, and I'll be mm-hmm. like, so what do you smell here? And sometimes they'll be like, cinnamon. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, th- yeah, they're they're interested. Uh, I don't know. They, you know, it'll be interesting to see. <laughs> Their perspective when they grow up as to like what daddy was doing every morning yeah. before he took him to school, you know? Yeah. Because I'll tell that to <laughs> parents. I'm like, I tasted 20 wines before I took the kids to school. And everyone looks at me like I'm a drunk, crazy person. But I'm like, it's my job. And I can, I like to taste in the morning because I get it out of the way. Uh, and your palate's fresher. Yeah. Um, and you're done with it. I can move on with the rest of my day, which involves things other than bottles and, and, and mm-hmm. wine. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, how have you seen things? I mean, your your purview being Central Coast, how have you seen things change even in the past, say, well, you've been with Wine Enthusiasts since years. 2014. Yeah. Yeah. How have things shifted? Um, I mean, there's a there's a ton of producers out there now. Yeah. You know, I think the more of the shift has been in the, I mean, the last five years, it's kind of intensified, but I think it's really started more like 10 years ago, you know, where... You saw uh, regions like Santa's Valley and Paso Robles that had kind of been, you know, dustier towns really kind of develop more of a food scene, of a, mm-hmm. of a kind of a vibrant culture scene. Um, and so that's been really interesting. And then obviously the situation in Santa Barbara with the urban, the urban wine situation yeah. is, is 
massive. I mean, there's like 30 tasting rooms down here now. There's like 50 in Los Olivos. Yeah. Uh, and it's a lot of it's a response to the, the county's very stringent on anyone building anything on their estate properties, even when they have large estates. And, yeah. and so it's kind of forced uh, these wineries into this into this tasting room, urban tasting room situation. What I'm seeing now, which I think is kind of interesting, is that about 10 years ago or so, a lot of these smaller wineries realized that the distribution model would not work for them because you got to sell your $30 wine for six bucks to somebody and then, you know, who knows if it gets sold. So they all figured out we got to go DTC, we got to go mm-hmm. direct to consumer. Tasting room is the model. So now everyone does that. And now I'm starting to see not, no one's panicking, but I can see the way that winemakers are talking about their sales models. Everyone's trying to figure out now how to compete in that highly competitive because it's environment. So saturated. It's so saturated. So everyone's trying to figure out. How to have a different tasting experience, oh, what else gosh, they can yeah. offer. Uh, and I know this a little bit because I've been doing a bunch of these um, mini, like small winery profiles for the Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle mm-hmm. for their the press, their yeah. their um, website thing. And uh, so I've been talking to people more about tasting rooms. And, vi- and honestly, I haven't been going to tasting rooms much mm-hmm. because why would I? Because it comes to you <laughs> in your garage. Yeah. Um, and so I've been going to them and kind of asking around, like, what are they doing? And I'm starting to see people really try to diversify. And uh, I think a lot of people are doing are still doing extremely well uh, yeah. in that in that situation. But um, it's also it's, it's helpful to, to be the shiny new thing on the block, and you yeah. can't keep that up forever. So everybody has a seated private wine tasting experience. Yep. Yeah, and some I, have like five different levels of it. Yeah. Sure, <laughs> you know. tiers, and and some of them I've seen are making it almost prohibitive to be part of the wine club, in the hopes of you know shifting up the the echelon of people who can participate and it's working for a lot of them which blows my mind yeah well it's funny like with with lots of like luxury goods people will pay more if you make it higher priced yeah (laughs) it's like oh i don't want to buy that for 30 oh it's 80 oh well, then, then I'm in. Sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So interesting. Just start doing that with like word counts for. No, <laughs> I will sell you this for three dollars a word, not a dollar. Oh my uh, gosh. Well, uh, let me ask you. You know, let's say it's you have 24 hours to live. What's the What's the wine that you would drink? Oh no. Um, from anywhere. I mean, I realize that there's no one bottle right. that's going to satisfy that, but just think of one. Think of one. Um, uh, well, so I make a little bit of wine. <laughs> from that vine out there? No. no, not from the one vine I have in my yard. But I make, uh, since 2012, I've made a tiny bit of wine with um, with Peter Work of Ampelos Vineyard. Oh, yeah. And um, so we've made various wines over the years. But in 2012, I, I got, we made, a, it was the first wine we made. And it was a Syrah and it was from Ampelos Vineyard. And it's a, it's a great wine. But I also, my dad helped out one day. And then my son helped out too. Oh, so man. So the bottle says, you know, made by three generations of Ketmans. And so if it had to come down to one wine, yeah, it'd probably be that. That's the right one. And generally speaking, cool climate Syrah or, you know, Northern Rhone Syrah. I mean, that's kind of like my bag, basically. Yeah. So, And I think a lot of, I've actually pitched this story like 50 times, but um, I think cool climate Syrah is like what, when you talk to winemakers, that's what they want to drink a lot. You talk mm-hmm. to Psalms, that's like what they want to drink a lot. I think it's the most interesting, often kind of perplexing wine out there. Uh, it it can taste like a dead animal, you know. Uh, 
I think one time I wrote a note that said, smells like a hunter coming back from a boar hunt or something. You know? Fresh from the kill. Yeah. And it's a very, it's a kind of polarizing wine. I'll pull some out. Um, you know, there's some great ones. Stolo makes a, a great example. Uh, yeah. I'll pull those out sometimes and half the room is like, whoa, this is amazing. And half the room is like, what the hell is yeah. wrong with this wine? You yeah. Know? So um, not that wine should be polarizing, but um, I think it's an interesting style of wine, and um, and that's kind of what I would opt for. That said, you know, real delicious Pinot Noir is, is hard to beat too, and I and yeah. I get a ton of that. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of what I review. Uh, you know, I re- every day when I review wine, I'm pretty much reviewing at least four to six uh, Pinot Noirs from the Central Coast, and then a smattering of everything else. So yeah, yeah. So that's that would be that. But that sounds good. Yeah. Okay, I want to be uh, by your deathbed if that would be possible. Yeah. <laughs> Me and your family. I yeah. think that's totally normal. Yeah, totally normal for sure. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me on Consumed. To get the latest in what's going on with the podcast, sign up for the Consumed newsletter at letsgetconsumed.com or follow me on Instagram at Jamie C. Lewis. Until next time, I'm Jamie Lewis. Jamie Lewis.